0: So this is the very last of this sermon series on sociology, and we're going to follow up this series as we do at the end of every series with a workshop tomorrow night at Fitzy's. So sociology, what on earth is this word? What does it mean? And specifically, we're looking at Christian sociology. We're not looking at sociology in a textbook or an encyclopedia or a dictionary. We're interested in God's biblical pattern of sociology. It's the study of the biblical pattern for social institutions such as family, church and government. So in other words, we want to know what's God's view, what's God's opinion, what's the biblical pattern for groups of people when they get together, like us, like a church. And as I was preparing this this week, I um, came across a, a little note that James brought home about a school camp he's about to attend. So young people, put your hand up and tell me if you do a school camp at your school. Ah, so there's a few of you. You mean to say, Josh Faint, you don't do a school camp at your school? Oh, that's sad. School camps are great. School camps are interesting because here we have a sociological group all coming together. And what I thought was interesting is some of the things that someone had written from James at school. And I thought to myself, let me see if I can see a biblical pattern here for when a group of people get together, and specifically a group of teenagers get together for about a week, all living outside. It says, Year 10 camp, what are we trying to achieve? And then in big, bold writing, teamwork and group organisation. I thought, mm-hmm, how are they going to do that? It says... True group work involves a collective agreement to contribute to the overall success of the whole group. I thought, that sounds good. And then they say, in what circumstances do you experience true group work? I thought, yeah, they're coming to it. They're thinking, you put a group of people together, you're bound to have problems, especially if you operate outside God's biblical framework. So I'm searching now, I'm interested. How are they going to do this, what they call true group work? And do you know what they say? The key here for them, you will sometimes have to put the needs of the group before your own personal needs. At that point, I smiled. There's a biblical principle there that I can see that they're using with this group of people, this sociological group. So what about us? What about this lovely church called CDM Church who had this beautiful time together this morning of coming together and worshipping God and, and singing to God and praising God and praying to God? What about us? Do we have a biblical pattern here? We'd want to have a biblical pattern here. We're in trouble if we don't have a biblical pattern here. So how would you know? I mean, who are we? Who are we as a group? Where would you go and find that? Where would you find something that's written down that says who we are? Website. That's exactly what I did. I went straight to the new website, which is fantastic, by the way. There is so much information on that website. There is so many new resources. If you haven't been there, go and jump on. There's heaps. It's fantastic and it's easy because you just click on pictures, which is great. So if you go onto our brand new website and click on... Who we are. So if I click on who we are, I find a statement about CDM Church, about this group. Has anyone else clicked on who we are? Put your hand up if you've clicked on the new website, the little section that says who we are. Okay, so this may be not so familiar. If you do that, you will see that there's a sentence really, one sentence to describe who we are. And it comes from the Bible, which is a good thing, because that tells us there's a biblical pattern. And what it says is it says, we are a house of prayer for all nations. That's it. We are a house of prayer for all nations. That's who we are. Is that biblical? Yes, it comes from Mark chapter 17, verse 11. And Jesus said, for isn't it written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So when did he say that? When did Jesus say that? He said that when he walked into God's house, the temple, and it wasn't being used as a house of prayer, this place was full of people trying to make money of merchants in fact he said this isn't a house of prayer this is a den of robbers he said it's supposed to be a house of prayer and we've said on our website this is who we are we're a house of prayer for all nations so I thought I knew what prayer was I thought well yeah that sounds good to me I I think this is us talking to God and us listening to God communicating to God we're a house of prayer I thought, I better just check just to make sure I'm not assuming I know what prayer means. Boy, am I glad I did. I went and had a look. What word did God want to use in the Bible, in that verse, in Mark 17, verse 11, for the word prayer? Oh, did I get it round the wrong way? Did I say 1711? Sorry about that. Dyslexic or something, eleven seventeen. What did God use? What word did he use for prayer? So I went and looked at the Greek work and it says, yes, This is when we're talking to God. But it also has a second meaning. And the second meaning is it says, it's a place which is set apart for prayer. So we are a place set apart for prayer here. It also means a place that's set apart for prayer can be a synagogue, so it can be a building. But oftentimes there was no building which sounds like CDM Church to me too. We don't own a building. But this is what prayer is. It's a place that's set apart for God. And what they used to do when they didn't have a building is they used to find somewhere in the open air outside near a place of water, like a stream or on a shore near the sea. And what they used to do is they specifically wanted to find somewhere near water so they could wash their hands because that was a Jewish custom. They used to wash their hands because for them it was very important that they were coming to a holy God and they wanted holy hands to worship a holy God. They were saying, we're setting this aside. This is a special place. This is like no other place. This isn't like the world. So you see, we're a special place here. We're a holy place here because God is here and he's a holy God. Paul said to Timothy, he said, I wish that men everywhere would lift holy hands and pray to God. Holy hands. Not just the ritual of washing their hands. He's talking about separating all the stuff that God doesn't want to see, especially separating sin from our lives, to come and interact with the holy God. Because Paul said, I want you to come. He said, I want to see people everywhere, men everywhere, raising holy hands in prayer. And then after that, he says, but without anger and without disputing. So he's showing us as a group of people, as God's people, he's saying, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for you to put off and get rid of anger, disputing, dissension, anything that would cause division when you come together as a group. I'm not looking to you do this external ritual of washing your hands and thinking, great, I've done the little ritual. This is what it's all about. There's much more. What that ritual signifies is the idea of putting off something, putting off when it comes together as a group of people, anger and dissension and any hint of a spirit of contention. He said, get it out, get it away. And that's who we are here as CDM Church. We are a holy, holy people. We've just learned. We're a chosen people. We're dearly loved here. We're different. And God says, you're coming to talk to me. So put the sin away, put the sin off, put the anger away. It's like just before Jesus came into the temple to get rid of, to put away what doesn't belong with a holy God and they were people that were trying to make money for themselves. It was all about them. It was greed. It was making money. It was making lots of money. Just before Jesus did that, that event is preceded by another event in the Bible. In Mark chapter 11, thank you very much. In 11, just before Jesus did that, he tells of another event. He came to the fig tree. You remember this? It's a really, it's a beautiful picture of the church, but it's connected to this idea of Jesus coming into the temple and saying he has to drive those money changers out. They do not belong in a holy place with a holy God where you're self-centered and greedy. You've got to put that off and get it out. Jesus comes to this fig tree and it looks nice on the outside. It's got green leaves. It looks healthy. But Jesus is not impressed by outward appearances of things. Jesus looks at this fig tree and he says, but there's no fruit. He curses the fig tree because he says the purpose of the fig tree is to produce fruit. But there's no fruit on this fig tree. You see, it was empty inside, just like the temple was empty inside. It was supposed to be true worship inside. So the fig tree and the church were similar. There was no fruit. He's looking for fruit inward. He's looking for fruit inside this church through his spirit. It's the only way we can produce fruit. He's not looking for us to be doing things that don't belong with a holy God. He said, I'm looking for you to produce fruit. He cursed the fig tree that didn't produce fruit. And you know when Jesus said, my house is meant to be you know, a house of prayer, he was quoting a scripture because he said, isn't it written? He was quoting a scripture from the Old Testament. And this is from Isaiah. And if you go to Isaiah chapter 56... You read about this same idea. God is angry that certain people have been excluded from the church that have been judged by outward appearance. They're looking at the fig tree and thinking it looks nice on the outside. Maybe they're the ones that should be in church. He was angry because he said people were looking at the outside and not liking the outside. Foreigners, eunuchs, officials from other places. Israel wouldn't even let them be citizens. And he's angry God because the church is saying, I'm going to judge by appearance and decide who comes in and then I'm going to judge by appearance as to who excluded. He said this is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. He's opening his doors to all people with all nationalities, all nations, all backgrounds, all financial backgrounds, all educational backgrounds. He's opening the doors to all nations. He makes that clear. And he says he especially is giving favour to those eunuchs and those officials and those foreigners who were excluded by that church back in Israel. And he said, I'm giving you favour because you are the ones that are obeying me. That's what impresses me. You are the ones that observe the Sabbath. You are the ones that love me. And he was angry with the leaders of that day because the leaders of that day were just like the money changers that Jesus came across in the temple. They were interested in their own needs. Just like the camp information at James's school camp is saying, you've got to put your own needs to the side. You've got to think about other people's needs when you come together as a group. That's the biblical pattern that Jesus lays down for us and that God laid down way way back in the Old Testament. He doesn't change. That hasn't changed. He's looking at us, our CDM church and saying, I'm looking for fruit here. I mean, we just learned a memory verse with three you know, fruits of the spirit. He's looking for that here. We need to be putting that on. He's looking for that. So last week, Mark looked at the Corinthian church because it's a group of people. And we saw some of the problems when the biblical pattern is not lived out in a church. It gives us an insight of the problems, the dynamic and the diversity of the church, the body of Christ. But we're not meant to be living that way because we've learnt this morning, you and I are holy, we're chosen and we're dearly loved. So we don't have to live this way. In fact, it gives us a warning of how not to live. Paul looks at this church and he says, to correct these problems, I need to teach you about the holiness of our heavenly culture. I need to talk to you about dynamic and work of the spirit and I need to talk to you about the diversity of the body. So let's look a little closely at the holiness of our heavenly culture because that's what our scripture, our memory verse is talking about. It's talking about how this can be a place with the heavenly culture, not an earthly culture. There is only one culture, Ephesians 4.24 says, And to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So to be a heavenly culture, we have to put on certain Christian qualities which we've just learnt on our hand. 2 Corinthians seven one says, Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything. Everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Let's get rid of, let's get put them off. Let's have holy hands when we come to God. Let's put off those things that contaminate this body. So we've got to put on and we've got to put off so that we can have one culture. And another word for culture is nation. He wants us to invite all nations in so we can become one nation. Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-two says, I will make them one nation. God baptizes us in one spirit to be one nation here. So here's our memory verse. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, we are chosen, we are holy, we are separated, we are put apart for a special purpose, and he is loving us every minute of every day. And it's beautiful to think he uses that word dearly. He dearly loves you and I. It's with this affectionate, warm, dear love. It's this beautiful, kind, gentle love that we're meant to put on. The important word is therefore. And whenever we read a passage and wherever we're studying a passage and it begins with therefore, we've got to say, what comes just before? Because he's actually alluding to something just before. What's he talking about? We need to look at context because context is king whenever we're looking at the Bible to understand or interpret it. So just looking at the verses just before our memory verse, it says, Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. This idea is a theme that is woven in the Bible again and again. It says we've got to put off and we've got to put on which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ in all and is in all. So again he tells us, we may be all different on the outside, but it makes no difference when we come together because we're all one. We may be different on the outside, but we're all one in Jesus. We're all one body. And we're all called to do the putting off and the putting on. It's not like some of us. It's all of us. We're all one. We're all the same. So therefore, as God's cho- chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. The first Christian quality he's looking for us to put on is compassion, something that we need to put on, something we need to make sure that we keep putting on. So let's have a look at compassion. What is compassion? Well, compassion is is a sympathy. It's understanding what someone else is going through. It's empathy. It's concern. It's consideration. It's care. Compassion is something that's modeled for us by Jesus. Jesus is the perfect model of compassion for us. So let's have a look at what Jesus looked like as one with much compassion. In Mark 6... 34 we read when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd so he began teaching them many things so we notice a pattern here the first thing is Jesus notices a need he notices they need teaching he notices they're kind of lost without a shepherd he notices the need and he immediately says I'll do something about it Let's look at the next example. Mark 8, 2. I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And what did he do after he said, I have compassion for these people that don't have anything to eat? He fed them. A third example from Jesus in Matthew 14, 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. He had empathy for them. He had consideration for them. And then once he felt that or recognized that need, he, he did something. He healed that sick. So Jesus models for us compassion, which is empathy, which is concern, which is looking for other people's needs. And then he says, I'm going to do something about it. So when we look at this memory verse and we say, yeah, this is what we need to do to be a church that God would be proud of, to follow the biblical pattern of God's idea of a group of people together in a church. But it's not easy to be compassionate, is it? It doesn't come as if though it's easy or natural. Otherwise, God wouldn't tell us to put it on. If we were already doing it, he wouldn't be commanding us to put it on. So what happens? And I think when Jade was was sharing this morning and she was talking about this external spiritual battle, we need to understand whenever God is asking us to put on these Christian virtues, we need to understand this isn't happening in in a place outside of the unseen spiritual world. This is happening in the context right in the middle of a spiritual battle. You see, from the outside we're being tempted, as Jade said, because... We have an adversary, and he is tempting us. In Mark 13, we read, Jesus was, he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. So if Jesus can be tempted, you and I can be tempted. Tempted doesn't mean sin, because we know in Hebrews it says Jesus has been tempted in everything every way just as we are the same as we are and yet he was without sin so when we are tempted not to put on compassion we need to understand it's at that point we have a choice to put off the opposite of compassion and to put on compassion the temptation is not the sin because Jesus was sinless and yet he was tempted It comes from outside of us. It came from outside of Jesus. So the temptation to do the opposite, to not worry about other people's needs, to say, oh, it doesn't matter. You've got plenty on your plate. Who cares about them? That's not coming from within you. The temptation to ignore other people's needs is from external to you. It doesn't belong to you. It means you can put it off. The other really important point when it comes to temptation is that we're not putting it off on our own. It's not like we're facing temptation on our own. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. So if you're getting tempted not to be compassionate... You can bet that that's pretty common, that there's other Christians that are being tempted exactly the same way. Who could care about others' needs? Who really cares? I'm busy. I need to look after number one. After all, isn't that what we do in this world? It's common. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. We can overcome every single temptation that comes to hit us because God is with us to enable us, to empower us, to overcome every temptation. So let's look at the temptation against compassion. Maybe it's unfeeling. Maybe it's indifference. Maybe it's hard-heartedness. Maybe it's cold-heartedness. It's actually understanding. If God's asking us to put on compassion, you can bet there will be a temptation to put on the opposite. If we see a need in the first place, and we've got to be looking for needs in the first place. Compassion says, see the need and do something about it. The temptation will be, oh, I don't think it really matters. I'm going to harden myself to that. I'll just look after me. But Jesus says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So he is helping us every time we're tempted to overcome the temptation to be indifferent, to be hard-hearted, to be cold-hearted, to not care. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness. So what's kindness? Well, kindness is thoughtfulness. Kindness is helpfulness. Kindness is charity. Listen to this um, definition of kindness in terms of the Greek word. Because it's really telling. The Vines Dictionary says, not merely goodness as a quality, rather it is goodness in action. It's looking for something to be done. Goodness expressing itself in deeds. So that's not new to us because we looked at compassion and said, Jesus had compassion on people and then he did something. So kindness shares that. It's an active thing that we're doing. But listen to this it goes on and it says, yet it is not goodness expressing itself in indignation or anger or outrage or annoyance against sin. So that's good, to be angry about sin. Jesus was angry about the sin in the temple and said, this is a place of prayer here, not for making money. It's a den of robbers. So he was angry about that, and that is good. But that's not what kindness is. The goodness is not expressing itself in anger against sin. What kindness is, is it's saying it's goodness in grace and tenderness. There's something very gentle. There's something very undeserving about the person that's given kindness. They don't deserve it. That's what grace is all about. They don't deserve it, but we're going to do it anyway. They're not kind to us first because it's given in grace. Let's look at an example from the Bible. We read in Acts 28.2, The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us, all because it was raining and cold. So context is king. What was going on here? Paul and Luke and a whole bunch of prisoners had been travelling in a ship for weeks. Weeks and weeks. And they found themselves shipwrecked now on this tiny little island of Malta. So they swam ashore. They all got there. And then almost straight away, these islanders, they built them a fire because it was raining and cold. So they saw that there's something they could do for them, some goodness they could do for them out of grace. They didn't know these people on the ship. It's not like the people on the ship, like Paul was kind to them first or Luke was kind to them first. They extended kindness to them. This is goodness out of grace. They were undeserving of being treated kindly. They'd only just been shipwrecked and came ashore. But these islanders can show us this idea that kindness is not paying back good for good. It's actually saying out of mercy and out of grace, I'm going to do something that is good for you. That is what God wants us to do when he says put on kindness. But there's going to be a temptation not to. What does the temptation look like? It looks like unkindness or meanness or nastiness. Maybe it's spitefulness or harshness. And we as a group of people that want to follow God's pattern for his church, because we are his church, a holy church, if we have new people coming in and they look a bit strange and they look a bit different, he's saying to us, go and be kind to them out of grace. It's undeserved. Because they haven't done anything to deserve kindness from you. But he's saying, I want you to put on kindness and I want you to give them kindness as soon as you see them. Just like these islanders did to Paul and Luke. It was as soon as he saw, uh, they saw them. Let's build a fire for you. How can we extend kindness to you? We don't know anything about you. Just like when new people come to our church, we don't know anything about them. There's no reason to be kind other than Jesus says, I filled you with my spirit so that you can be kind. And I'm saying, put that on and do it. So therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness and humility, which is what? It's unpretentious. It's being modest. The Greek word says a deep sense of one's moral littleness. And I think to myself, moral littleness. What would make me feel morally little if I wanted to put on humility? Who would I stand next to? Who would I think of to feel morally little? It's easy, isn't it? As soon as we bring Jesus into our minds and his moral perfection, all of a sudden, maybe our estimation of ourselves goes down. Maybe we can start to see some of the things that we maybe don't want to see in ourselves but will show us next to Jesus we really are very morally little. What does the Bible say as an example? In Philippians 2.3 it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. So when we come together as a group of people, they're saying when you look at others, consider others better than you. See something in others that you think is admirable or worthy or important. It's not looking at yourself, it's looking at others. Humbleness is saying, what is it about others that is so good, that is I can consider as being worthy? So humility is something that isn't going to come easily to us unless we're actually putting it on and understanding that conceit haughtiness, superiority, pride and self-importance are all going to be sin crouching at the door, tempting us. It is tempting for us. Our flesh loves it. And we need to understand that humility is, is something that we're going to be needing to work on constantly if we're wanting to be the church that God intended us to be, to be a holy church set apart from the world, which is full of conceit and pride and self-importance. It's interesting when we look at humility and the temptation not to be humble or the temptation to be full of pride, if we look at the way Jesus was tempted in the desert. so Remember right at the beginning, he hadn't had anything to eat for 40 days and 40 nights. And the very first temptation that the devil tried on Jesus was to say, turn these stones into bread. It was like, let me go for your weakness. Let me see if I can get you in your weak spot because I know you haven't had anything to eat for a while. So let's see if I can tempt you to turn these stones into bread. And the same is for us. We're often tempted when we're vulnerable and when we're weak. But you know, pride is actually not being tempted when we're weak. Pride is the thing that happens when we're feeling strong. You see if you look at Jesus and the three times he was tempted in the desert. The desert in the desert. The devil was actually trying to tempt him to use his power, which is his strength, every time. It was like, turn these stones into bread. Use your power, use your strength. For the wrong reasons, of course, but he's actually trying to get at pride, which, of course, Jesus didn't have. But it's the same for us. It's the same for us when we're um, thinking that maybe we're really strong in an area. The devil is saying, "Yeah, go for it. Use that strength for the wrong reason, because that's going to feel good." So we have to watch the temptation around humility that this often doesn't come when it attacks our weakness, it comes when it attacks our strength, when we think we're strong. So Colossians 3.12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility and gentleness. A gentleness which is calm, which is tender. It's a meekness or a mildness. The Bible tells us what gentleness is all about. In First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So gentleness speaks of the way we speak to people. Gentleness is saying when we're talking about this beautiful solution in Jesus, this beautiful hope that we have in Jesus, God's saying to us, I'm interested in the way you talk to people, not just what you say, but how you say it. He wants us to be gentle with people that don't know Jesus. He wants us to be gentle in the way that we explain the hope that we have for people who are asking us questions. There'll be a temptation to be harsh, maybe ruthless or rough or cruel. But Jesus says, Don't forget, I'm able to help you when you're tempted. That's not coming from within you to be any of those things because you're a chosen people, you're a holy people and I dearly love you. So none of these things are coming from within you and they're a temptation that you can overcome because I'm here to help you. So if we can know God's word, I mean, memorizing scripture is great because we can know God's word. But if we want to overcome these temptations, we need to understand what God's word is saying to us and do God's word, put it on. And it's when we know God's word and when we put on God's word, when we're doing God's word, that's how Jesus helps us to overcome all those temptations to do the opposite, all those vices that are looking to get an edge on us. He says that's how you bear fruit. I'm not interested in the green tree, I'm interested in the fruit. And he says, stand when we're tempted, stand when we're in that spiritual battle. Sharpen the sword by not only knowing the word, memorizing the word, but understanding the word and obeying the word. That's how we overcome every temptation to put on a vice instead of a virtue. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He's looking for persistence. He's looking for forbearance. He wants us to put on endurance and constancy and steadfastness. That's what patience is all about. In 1 Timothy 1.16, we read, But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, this is Paul talking to us, he says, "On the worst of sinners. Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. So Jesus is showing us his unlimited patience to model for us what he wants us to put on. And if we stop for just a moment, and if we just think of our own walk with Jesus, even if you think about this past week walking with Jesus, in what way has he shown you his unlimited patience? How many times have we walked away from Jesus and said, I'm too busy for you, and yet he stays with us? What about when we doubt his word? His unlimited patience says, I'm here waiting for you for when you turn back to me. What about when we doubt he's even existing? He says, I am faithful even when you're faithless. Every step we take, Jesus is showing us his unlimited patience. And it's that unlimited patience that we have through his spirit within us that we can extend to other people, but we need to put it on. The opposite of patience is annoyance, it's irritation, it's intolerance, exasperation, it's rashness, it's impulsiveness. It's anything that is not slow to to anger, anything that is not extending ourselves, persevering with people when we feel like being irritable with people. The temptation will be right there crouching at our door if we're not putting on patience. So Paul addresses all these problems in the Corinthians church and he teaches through three different topics. He said, we need a holy, holy place with a heavenly culture. That's what God's church is all about. And it's putting on these Christian virtues and it's putting off the vices that gives us a holy culture, a holy nation. Number two, he talks about the dynamic and the work of the Holy Spirit. He says there's only one Spirit. He says in 1 Corinthians twelve seven to 10 Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And then he goes on to list all these different manifestations of the Spirit which are given for the common good. It's not our own needs but the group's needs that he's interested in. And it's these giftings, it's these manifestations of the spirits, these spiritual giftings, he says, are not for yourselves but for the common good. He says all these are the work of one and the same Spirit and he gives them to each one just as he determines. He gives us these gifts to help us get along. He gives us these gifts to show himself in this place so we can be set apart from the world. And Paul says, don't be ignorant about these gifts, which is why we're doing this workshop tomorrow, to look at spiritual gifts, the work that the Spirit is doing through us, the work that spiritual gifts does in the church for the common good. But sometimes we don't even know what our own spiritual gifts are. Sometimes we don't know what the Spirit is doing through us and sometimes we don't recognise the people that are really gifts to the church. We're looking at those three categories of giftings tomorrow night at the workshop. How do we know what they are? And how would we identify them in ourselves and in each other? Spiritual gifts is an important part of being a holy church, a house of prayer for all nations. And the third thing Paul talked about to the Corinthians church was the diversity of the body. He talks about the fact that while we're very, very different, And certainly on the outside, we're very, very different. Our giftings through him are very, very different. But he says, you are one through me. You are a unified, integrated, cohesive group with me to unify you, to make you one through me, even though you're different. That doesn't happen in an earthly culture. That only happens in a heavenly culture called church. So here at CDM Church, to conclude this morning, at CDM Church, there's three things that we can look at to be the church God is looking for, to follow the biblical pattern for a church. We need to put off that earthly culture and put on that heavenly culture that we looked at this morning, the five beautiful Christian virtues that we can put on to be different to a social group that's anywhere in the world with an old earthly culture. We can be eager to have spiritual gifts that build up this church. And we can appreciate the diversity of the body, that there are so many differences in each person that comes to this church, that is part of this church, and yet we are one. We are one through Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you make us one, that you baptised us into your body, that you draw us together, you unify us, you empower us to put off all the temptations, Lord, and you empower us to put on those Christian virtues that you're looking for in your church, in your heavenly culture, here in your body. Lord, we pray that... We would keep coming to you and depending on you to be your house of prayer for all nations. That we would include all peoples from all walks of life, Lord. That we would exclude none, Lord. That we would welcome all. And that we would continue to put on and to put off, Lord, every day. That we would see people's needs and we would act on them. Help us, Lord, this week to see the needs in people's lives and to act on those needs, Lord Jesus. Help us not to be indifferent, not to be hard-hearted, Lord. We pray in your precious and holy, holy name. Amen.